Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the passage that Christine read for us just a moment ago from Hebrews chapter 2. Most of you probably don't know this because you're either in one venue or the other for worship, but whenever I ask one of the wonderful godly helpers that God has given us as a church family with uh, ministering in two locations simultaneously, Brother Ray, Brother Dennis, Brother Daryl, I, I give them a suggested uh, text and ask them if they would prepare a message for us that God would lay on their hearts, and then they preach that same message in both places. But what I normally do is, let's just say, for example, if Ray is going to be preaching like he did last week here from Judges, I would then prepare over there a sermon that would precede his, knowing the next week he's going to be over there preaching the same message, and then I would preach a sermon for you that, that would follow his. Okay, so in other words, I write two for their one, one to come before, one to come after, so that they're in logical sequence. But every now and then the Lord says, no, I need all of my people in the first family of Waterloo to hear what I've put on your heart. And this is one of those cases. And so as I've gone back to the text and re-looked at it this week, uh, interrupted as it was by the, by the sudden loss of, of Sheila, I've realized that while the main emphases are the same, the, 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 the lining out of it may be slightly different. And I come to you this morning with nothing more than God's word in our hands and his word, I believe, in my heart. And so I ask that even as you're listening, you'll be praying. Praying for me, praying for us as a family as we hear. Because this is something that is very near and dear to us as Southern Baptists, is very near and dear to us as evangelical believers, and that is this question on the sanctity and dignity of human life. Last weekend, across the evangelical world, we were commemorating Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And so it was only fitting that over there at the beacon, I was uh, bringing this message on the topic of the sanctity of human life, the dignity of human life. And I wanted to bring it to you as well for a number of reasons. First of all, I think it's very, very important to us. It's not a one Sunday emphasis. It's something we should always be emphasizing. Maybe not the main thing every Sunday, but every time we have the opportunity, we should be talking about the dignity and sanctity of human life. And why it's so important for us as evangelical Christians, as Southern Baptists, as Americans, to be continually promoting and positioning uh, the thoughts of those around us, the dignity and sanctity of our fellow humans from conception to natural death. But there was another reason I wanted to do it too. And, and I hope I don't put anybody off by this, but I've just got to tell you, because you know me, I try to be transparent. One of the things I want us to do in the message today is to learn how to use doctrinal topics, doctrinal truths, and apply what may seem to be very theoretical, very um, almost philosophical in a way, theological concepts, and apply them to very practical areas of our lives. Because see, this is something that we don't do really well. I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't mean here at Waterloo, I'm just talking about in general, we evangelical Christians. We have a tendency to have very spiritual principles, very spiritual goals, very spiritual stands on things, but we try to promote and, and present and, 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 and encourage those positions using very secular means. Does that make any sense? Give me an example, Pastor. Okay. We all believe that the lost should have an opportunity to hear the gospel in such a way that they could respond to it 
in a knowledgeable way. It's not enough just to stick a track in somebody's hand for them to read who knows nothing about the Christian faith and expect that that... Now, I'm not saying the Holy Spirit can't do that, but we believe that every person living on planet Earth should have the opportunity to understand the gospel cognitively in such a way that they can make a rational decision to accept Christ or not to accept Christ. Every one of you knows who the prophet Muhammad was. Every one of you knows a little bit about Islam. If you were in school, you probably maybe remember that you at least learned the five pillars. You probably don't remember what they were. But you don't know enough about Islam to, to make a decision about whether you would like to become Muslim or not. That's why Muslims are actively engaged in evangelism in America today. The largest missionary force in America today is not the Southern Baptist North American Mission Board. It is the Muslims in America. They're actively engaged in evangelism to reach converts to the Islamic faith. And so in the same way, there are many people in the world who know who Jesus is. They know that he lived a life that didn't sin, died on the cross. They know all those things, but they don't understand what it means to them. So we believe that's very important. But then when it comes to, okay, so how do we accomplish that? We often will use very, very secular ways of thinking about things in order to accomplish it. Very humanly based, humanly powered, humanly driven techniques and theories and rationales for accomplishing a very spiritual goal. And while I believe that God does use secular things, we don't first of all go to him and say, Lord, what would you want us to do? And I can give you any number of other examples. Church growth, um, discipleship, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what I want us to do today is I want us to take a few minutes as we're working through this passage from Hebrews chapter 2, which is probably one of the most unlikely passages you would ever have on the topic of the sanctity and dignity of human life and see how the gospel, the gospel message speaks to the very practical issues of abortion, adequate care for the aged and infirm, reaching out for children and young women caught in sexual slavery, both here in the United States and around the world, and many, many other issues related to the sanctity and dignity of human life. Because when we think of the gospel, we think about that little gold track that we all had when we were kids back in the 70s, and we all saw, and it said, did you know, do you know God's four spiritual laws? We'd open it up, and on the inside cover it says, just as there are laws that govern the physical universe, so also there are laws that govern the spiritual universe. And we would read that track through, and just that was the gospel. It was sharing with someone how they could become a Christian. And guess what? That is the gospel. But the gospel doesn't stop at the moment a person says, yes, I want to pray and receive Christ as my Savior. I want to surrender my life to Him as Savior and Lord. The gospel should impact every aspect of our lives until the day we meet Him in glory along with Sheila Badger. But oftentimes, once we get past the threshold of salvation, we tend to kind of minimize those gospel truths. And we think about other areas in our spiritual life, but we don't let the gospel impact everything that we do. And if we're going to be a gospel-centered people, we've got to think gospel-centered ways. So this morning, as we talk about the issue of sanctity of life, we're going to look at this text, which talks to us very clearly about the cross, about salvation, about Jesus Christ and his role in that process, and talk about how then does that impact our daily lives. Because, beloved, listen to me. Please listen to me. I know you are, but just Listen. Our emphasis as the church of Jesus Christ in America today is not about the voting block or the voting booth. It is not about our cultural background. It is not about the influence that we can have as American citizens. We have something much more important to take into this battle, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
It is the gospel that brings life and hope for a future that goes beyond this temporal life. And if we are satisfied with being bandied about like a tennis ball to whichever political persuasion most represents what we agree with, and that's the only voice we have, we will have abdicated a role that no one else in American society has to play. Who else shares eternal values into the common marketplace if not the church? Who else shares spiritual truths if not the church? So that is our role, and that's what I want us to see today. Why do we believe that every human life is sacred? Why do we believe that every human life has dignity? We believe it because God believes it. We believe it because God declared it to be so. And as we look at the truths of the gospel, I'm going to choose just three facets of that wonderfully multifaceted doctrinal truth of salvation and the gospel. And look at just three areas as it's highlighted in this passage And look at how those then impact the way that we look. How does God show us in his word through Jesus Christ that he values human life? The first way is in the area of the incarnation. Now, when you think of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, you don't always think of that as part of the gospel. And yet the incarnation is critical to the gospel. The incarnation, if it were not for Jesus coming in flesh, he would not have been able to have given his life as a a ransom, as a payment for the penalty of our sin. So before we can ever get to the cross, we have to start with the humility of Jesus' incarnation, fully God, and yet not just clothed in humanity, not just appearing to be human, not just acting as if he were human, but truly, and in a way that we will never be able to fully fathom in this world, truly man. And so the incarnation in itself begins by speaking about God's value to human life. Because you see, when God devised the plan that only he could devise for how he would redeem us and restore us and pay the, have the penalty of our sin and the separation between us and him settle and established, it had to begin with him coming himself as God in the form of man. And because he valued us, because he valued human life, because he valued the role that we play in his creation, Because he loved us in a unique and special way over all the rest of his creation. He sent his son. And not just as an adult man walking in out of the wilderness like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. But as a baby in a manger. I find it interesting that in this passage it says at the end of verse 9. It says that Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering in death. At the very moment when Jesus was the most vulnerable, at the moment when Jesus was the most powerless, at the moment that Jesus seemed to be, to human eyes, the most worthless and valueless, that is the point at which God crowned him with glory and honor. But it didn't start at the cross. Jesus' vulnerability, Jesus' dependence did not start at the cross. It started in the womb of Mary. Have you wrapped your mind around the fact that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, was once an embryo? Jesus Christ was a fetus. Jesus Christ became totally dependent upon his heavenly Father and his earthly mother for his life. 
And in doing that, God says to us, I value every second of human life from the very moment of conception when an infant is conceived in the womb of its mother until that person lives out their life and dies a death that I have planned for them. Their their life is valuable to me. You remember the first time John the Baptist ever met Jesus? wasn't the Jordan River. No, 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 no. It was when he was in the womb of Elizabeth. And Mary comes to visit her cousin. And that pre-born John, inside of Elizabeth's formerly barren womb, as Christ in the womb of Mary comes, the Holy Spirit fills John in utero. And he leaps in the presence of I'm not the one who would be his savior. The one who is his savior. And so Jesus' very incarnation itself speaks to us of the value that God places on human life. Now I know that we often talk, and maybe I talk about it too much. I just want to, sometimes I have to, I can't say much about washing our hair. we, We need to... Get out of our minds an almost subtle and yet pervasive idea that no matter how much we're told otherwise, we believe there must be some kind of value in us. There must be some kind of intrinsic value in us that God would want us on his team. And we go back to Paul. I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. And so we talk again and again and again. There's nothing endemic in us that, is, that, that makes us worthy. But that does not mean that God does not love us for who we are. My New Testament professor, Gerald Borcher, <laughs> one day in a New Testament class, this was back in the good old days of overhead cells. Remember overhead projectors and overhead cells? We threw all of our overhead projectors out about three years ago out of the church. We thought we're never going to use them again. Uh, actually, we do. You know what we use our overhead projectors for now? To take and use them as a silhouette so we can draw things. That's how they drew the, the scripture verses on the high school wall out of the beacon is by using an overhead. But we don't use them very often. But he put a picture of a beautiful, well, a beautiful, a baked enamel pot. Now, I'm not going to go in. I had to explain to the beacon what baked enamel was, okay? Most of us remember baked enamel cookware. You know, it was white on the outside and blue speckly on the inside. It, was, it had been painted with, it was a metal pot, been painted with enamel, put in the fire to cook it. And then it was, it was strong. It was before the days of Teflon, before the days of all that. That was your nonstick cookware. It was, was baked on enamel. And it was a baked on enamel little stock pot. It didn't have a handle. It had those two little side handles on it. And a nice little round lid. And on the outside was a drawing that I immediately recognized as being a Norman Rockwell. And Dr. Borcher told us a story about this pot. Now, he told it to be true. I've never been able to find it anywhere on the internet. But he told it to be true, so I'm going to believe him. He said one night Norman Rockwell was traveling. And his car broke down. And so he walked to a, a farmhouse to ask if maybe they had a phone that he could call uh, to get some help. And the farmer said, of course, come on in. And he woke his wife up. And while uh, Rockwell was on the phone, found out they couldn't come until the next morning. And he was figuring he would sleep in the car and wait till the next morning for someone to come and help. He, the, 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 the man said, of course, you're not going to do that. You're going to sleep right here. We've got an extra bedroom. You can stay with us. The wife got up in the middle of the night, cooked a meal, and served him. And as a gift to them, he took her stockpot and drew a picture of a farmhouse in the woods and it is now a classic Norman Rockwell picture. 
And then Dr. Borchardt asked us, do you know where this was found? I said it got lost for 50, 60, 70 years. And then it was discovered in a curio shop, in a junk shop. And when the person that owned the shop was asked where it came from, he said, I don't know, somebody just brought it. He said they used it as a slop jar. Now that's all I'm going to say about that. If you've got, are there any little ones in the room? When you go home, ask your mom what a slop jar is. Okay, you're dead. Okay? Use it as a slop jar. I remember slop jars. My grandmother's house. And then Dr. Borcher, in that wonderful Canadian accent of his, he said, young people, I want you to remember. It's not what's in the pot that gives it its value. It's the one who made it. You see, what is in me is reprehensible to God. But I still bear His image. I have His imprint on me. And that is valuable to God. And so God values us as humans, not because of what we have done or not done or could do or should do. He values us because we are created in His image. And Jesus shows that in His incarnation. But Jesus didn't stay a baby. He grew up. Went through all the stages of life that we all do and ended up at the cross. Notice it says in verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 2. For in bringing many sons to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, all things exist through him, for him, and through him, should make the source of their salvation perfect or complete or entire or sufficient through sufferings. Regardless of what we believe about election and foreknowledge and salvation, the one thing we all agree on is that Jesus Christ's death on the cross was sufficient for every human being. It's only efficient or effective for those that receive it. It would be, for example, if I were to write you a check, assuming it's a good check, for $10,000 and hand it to you. It means nothing if you don't cash it. It is sufficient There's enough money in the bank to cash that check, but if you don't use it, it doesn't matter. If you don't ever take it to your bank and get it cashed or or deposit it, it doesn't matter whether I have the cash or not. And in the same way, Jesus Christ's death is sufficient for all humanity, all people. And then those who surrender their lives to Jesus Christ, who accept what he did for them on the cross, who receive God's forgiveness, it is effective in their lives to bring them to salvation. That very death, that judicial declaration by God, where God said, you have been brought before my my bar of justice, you have been found guilty, you have broken my law, the penalty is death, and the penalty will be exacted. And then Jesus Christ steps in between us and his own father and says, I paid the penalty for that person. I am no less guilty just because the penalty has been paid. Do not fall into that trap. I am not just. I am not righteous. God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness is imputed onto me, but it is His righteousness, not mine. I'm still a sinner. I am still guilty. I'm still deserving of death. But by His death on my behalf, the penalty has been paid. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad you don't have to pay your penalty? Don't you wish you didn't do what I do sometimes and think i got to do something to prove to God how sorry I am? i got to try to make up for what I've done. That's another topic for another day. But Christ's justification 
through his death on the cross, reminds us of how much value God places on humanity. How much dignity and value every human being has. From that unborn child to that person at the point of death. At his most vulnerable, hanging there on the cross, when he could not even get a drink of water for himself. Someone had to put it on a sponge on the end of a stick to give it to him. He could not do anything for himself. He was totally vulnerable and useless. At that point, he provided our salvation. He provided our justification. He paid the judicial penalty for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. And that in and of itself reminds us about how much value God puts on human. You see, people will say to you, oh, that poor lady, we heard she got her test back and her baby has severe Down syndrome. Horrific, debilitating condition. Pastor, why don't you just suggest to her that maybe she should consider aborting that baby? Why would you want to bring that baby into the world to suffer so much, so horribly, not just the child, but the parents, as they watch their child go through all of that. I say, I'll tell you why not. Because Christ died for that child. That is my brother or my sister in Christ, and they have value. They are someday going to be one of the kings of the universe. Why would I want to take the initiative upon myself to end that child's life and we have no idea what God has planned. Christ's death was sufficient. And this is one way we can model this in our church life. I appreciate every one of you that read the scriptures, that have the prayer, that help receive the offering. But you know, one of the little things that we can do to help remind ourselves and the world around us that we value every human life. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name the name. And if you'll forgive me, I'm just going to go ahead and name the name. I'll tell you when we'll begin to make a difference. Really. Is the day we invite Jill Johnston to read the scripture. Y'all all know Jill? Or we ask Jill to lead the prayer before the message. Or we take Brendan Bischel and ask his mom if Brendan would like to read the scripture one Sunday morning. You see, when we begin to say, you have just as much dignity, just as much value as anyone else in the room does, then we will truly live what we say we believe and what we know that God believes. And that is that every human life is valuable to him. But not just in... His incarnation, not just in justification, but also in redemption. Because you see, justification, at least in my mind, it's a little more complicated than this, but just in my mind for today, justification is the, is the judicial side of our salvation. We're guilty, we've been accused, there's a penalty, Christ paid the penalty, we accept the penalty payment, we're forgiven. The relationship is restored. But the redemption side is the bondage part. The bondage of our sin. It's the relationship part. And not only did God show the value of human life through sending his son as an embryo, to grow as a fetus, to come, be born as a baby, to be totally dependent and grow up, give his life to pay the penalty. He also, it says right here, he also redeemed us from fear. Notice what it says in verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 2. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by what? The fear of death. 
Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty for our sins absolutely, positively, 100%. He also came to break the bonds of the king of death. He to break the bonds of Satan that he wraps us up in. You see, Satan is crafty. He has two great powers at his disposal. The power of deception and the power of accusation. I heard Russell Moore, the head of our uh, Religious Liberty Organization, Ethics Religious Liberty Commission, make an amazing statement never thought about before. He said, there is no one who is more pro-choice than Satan as a young woman walks in to the, pre- to the, cri- to the uh, abortion clinic. And there is no one more pro-life than Satan when she walks out. And what did Russell Moore mean by that? Before the girl decides, the young woman decides, and she's wrestling with it, Satan says, you know what, you can do it, nobody will know, it'll be, it'll be quiet, it'll be secret, it'll be fine. It's just, a, it's just a procedure, simple as having your tonsils out, maybe simple. Nobody will know. And he lures her and seduces her into this, and the minute that the act is done, he says, I know you, I know what you did, you will never ever get over this again. That's the way Satan works. Have you never been caught in his trap? He seduces you into sin, and then he turns around and accuses you of the very sin that he seduced you into performing so that he can chain you and debilitate you and bind you. And so we come to church and we talk about the love and the forgiveness of God, and we talk about very sanitized examples about how God can forgive us of jealousy and anger and bitterness. And that post-abortive mom is sitting in this room and no one even knows she's post-abortive. And she says, yes, but would he accept me? And that man who funded that abortion because he didn't want to have to be a daddy and now he lives with Satan's constant accusation. He says, yes, that sounds great if the only thing I've ever done was been jealous of my neighbor's new car, but is it enough for me? And the answer is, Yes! But we have to live that. We have to live that. And not just for that mom who chooses to have an abortion. Not just for that dad who funds the abortion, but also for the abortionist. For that doctor who has to live every day with the fear and the guilt of what he does to say there is mercy and redemption in the blood of Christ. Because you see, the moment that you, that you confessed your sins and repented, the moment that you turn to Christ, as we talked about in Sunday this morning, metanoia, change your mind, go in a new direction. The minute you did that, Christ's righteousness was placed over you. And now when God looks at you, He doesn't see you in your sin. He sees Christ. He says, you are my beloved child. You know, I'm well pleased. And the same thing is true of the Kermit Gosnells of the world, of the Dr. Kevorkians of the world of those pimps and those sex slave traffickers, when they hear the gospel and repent and turn to Christ, there is forgiveness. And we, while we must always stand for justice, we must always stand for a measured but sufficient punishment and penalty for these things, we must also remind ourselves that on the other side of judgment, on the other side of justice, there is mercy. And unique to Christianity of all religions worldwide is the fact that those two things are eternally melded together in one coin. He is both just and the justifier. He is both the judge and 
the one taking the punishment. There is both justice and mercy. And that, I think probably more than anything else, speaks of the value that God places on human life. Every human life. That 83-year-old man sitting in his own waste in a Medicaid room in an underfunded nursing home has value to God. That 14-year-old girl that ran away from home thought she had met a friend who then enslaved her so that her body is being used for him to make money has value to God. That Down syndrome baby in utero is a precious child of God. And so we don't have to go campaigning. Listen, I know we still, after all these years, still love to wave our Roe v. Wade with a little circle in the line through it. I would love to see Roe v. Wade overturned. But do you really think the battle will be over when it gets overturned? You really think, okay, now we'll all go on about our business. We've won. Oh, come on. This battle will never be over as long as sin reigns in the world. We will always be standing for the rights of those who are the most powerless, the most voiceless, the most underrepresented. That's why your pastor is going to take a week of his vacation in the spring to spend 30 hours of training to be a CASA volunteer. Because there are children in our judicial system for whom there's no one to speak. And I will speak for them. And I would invite you to join me. You don't know about CASA? Just get on your little computer and look it up. Court-appointed special advocates. Because that is our call as the church. Yes, we should campaign for new laws. Yes, we should push for judges that will be fair and equitable. Yes, we should push for people in our legislatures and and, and other places of power. But at the same time, we do that as American citizens. But we remind ourselves, we'll only be American citizens until when? Until the day we die. The day you die, you're no longer an American citizen. You can't vote. You can't get an income tax return. But you will always be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Always. And so while we, as as Americans, stand for justice and righteousness, we also, as Christians, stand for the love of Christ that says, yes, Mr. Abortion Doctor, there is forgiveness for you if you repent. Yes, Mr. Pimp, there is a forgiveness for you. Yes, person sitting in the pew, with all those hidden sins you think God won't forgive, and you live every day with guilt. Right now you are just wincing inside, fighting back the tears. You say, Steve, you just don't understand what I've done. Doesn't matter. God understands. Way back there on that cross, he paid the penalty for your sin. There is no penalty. There is no condemnation to you if you will surrender and accept the payment that Christ made for you. You can be free from the fear of death. You can be free from the accusations of the enemy. You can be free from your own guilt. You can know true freedom because you have value to God. And with that in mind, let's pray. Father, thank you for helping me this morning. Thank you for opening the hearts of those that needed to hear what you wanted to say through this broken vessel. 
It's not what's in the pot that matters. It's who made the pot. And Father, I pray that in this time of responding, that we will think about not just the ethical issue of the sanctity of the unborn or the aged or the abused, yes, but some of us need just to first of all think about the value that you place on us, on me, because we don't value ourselves. We know we're dirty. We know we're unclean. We know we are sinful. And we wonder, could you really forgive us? Could you really wash us whiter than snow? And the answer is a resounding yes. Oh, yes. There is room at the cross for you. And I pray that in these moments, we will find freedom through the gospel of Jesus Christ. For those of us who have never surrendered our lives to Christ, we'll recognize perhaps for the very first time, or maybe this is just going to be the tipping point, that we need to stop trying to live up to God's standards and just accept what Christ did for us. And for those of us who are believers, but who are still living with little closets of filth in our heart, by your Spirit, will you please coax us into understanding that while it may be hard for us to come to you, that when you cleanse us, it gives us a freedom that we may have not known in years, decades, as we try to hide. So Father, wherever we are right now, in this moment, Will you speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name.